0: Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 37 of the Bible in 90 Days. Today, we move through the story of Esther and then into the book of Job. Both of these books have significant, unique place in the biblical collection of books. We come first to the book of Esther. By the way, just read the whole book. It's such a fantastic story. I can't really recommend any chapter as better than another. Chapter 1. Tells us the story begins with a Ahasuerus showing off the great wealth of his kingdom followed by an exorbitant party in an opulent ballroom. Seven days into the party, a drunken king demands the beautiful Queen Vashti's presence so he can parade her before the gathered nobles. She refuses. The king asks for counsel about what to do. Memucan, one of the king's advisors, warns that King Vashti's actions will incite women across the empire to be disrespectful and proposes the king make a decree. That decree would strip Vashti of her power and access, provide for another to take her place, and be a lesson to all the women of Persia. The king orders it done. Chapter 2. Sometime later, the king remembers Vashti and wishes to replace her. The king's attendants recommend a search for beautiful young virgins be undertaken. In the process, a young orphaned Jewish girl, Hadassah, is taken to the palace, though known after this as Esther. She is forbidden to reveal her national identity by her uncle, who had become her guardian. Her uncle, Mordecai, stays near the palace to catch any word as to the fate of Esther. The young women are given a special preparation lasting 12 months, after which they appear before the king, taking with them anything they might choose from the harem. Each girl would see the king for one night and never again unless he was pleased with them. When Esther's turn came, she took with her only what Hegai, the king's eunuch, had suggested. And I quote, And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She won the king's heart, too, and was made queen with great fanfare. The end of the the chapter reports that Mordecai, while sitting at the king's gate, uncovers an assassination plot, which, through Esther, is relayed to the king and the offenders are executed. Chapter 3 tells of a sinister plot to destroy the Jews by a man named Haman, whom the king elevated to a position of great prominence. This Haman was outraged that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him homage, vowing not only to take revenge on him, but on the whole Jewish population. Haman persuades the king to make a law dealing with these Jews, even offering bribe money. The king declines the money but gives Haman the okay to do as he pleases. By the way, I should note, the date on which Haman's plan is intended to unfold was selected by casting lots. That's important because the festival in commemoration of the overthrow of Haman's plot was called Purim, referencing lots. Not long after, dispatches are sent to the whole kingdom, and now I quote, with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. It's sealed with the king's own ring. Chapter 4, Mordecai, learning of the plot, is in deep distress, wailing loudly and bitterly. The same was true elsewhere. Every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The Jewish people were in grave danger. Esther, upon hearing of Mordecai's distress, is extremely worried about him, though she's unaware of the larger story that's unfolding. Through her personal attendant, Hatak, Mordecai is able to get the story to her, including a copy of the edict, and instructs her, go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther replies that this is a difficult, life-threatening action. Mordecai's response to Esther is relatively famous, and I quote, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's words in response. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do when this is done. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In chapter 5, Esther dares to go before the king and is received with grace. Her request is simple. Let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. As they dine, the king queries Esther as to her matter of concern and she asks the king and Haman to return a second time. The king obliges. Between this banquet and the second, Haman once again encounters that stubborn Mordecai, who refuses to bow. Haman is incensed, sulking when he gets home in spite of being the honored guest to attend the banquet with the king. His wife suggested he build a gallows on which to hang Mordecai, And this suggestion delights Haman. Chapter 6 records a devastating turn of events for Haman, however, as Mordecai's good deed of sparing the king's life is brought to the king's attention. Haman, headed into the court to speak to the king about Mordecai, is instead asked by the king to suggest what should be done to honor the man the king delights to honor. Thinking of himself, he instructs that this man ought to be paraded around town, led by a messenger crying, This is what is to be done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman is then instructed to do this for Mordecai. It's a humiliating blow to the conceited fellow who rushed home with his head covered in grief after he'd finished escorting Mordecai. Upon hearing the story, Haman's wife makes a somber declaration. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Then Haman headed to the second banquet with the king and Esther. Chapter 7 finds the king again asking the queen, and I quote, What is your request, even up to half the kingdom? It will be granted. Then Esther pleads for her life and that of her people. The king is beside himself. Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther responds, an adversary, and enemy, this vile, Haman. The king gets up in a rage and then comes back only to find Haman, and I quote, falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king orders Haman impaled on the pole made for Mordecai. In chapter 8, Esther receives Haman's estate and Mordecai is given the king's ring, once belonging to Naaman. Excuse me, to Haman. And then Esther pleads, weeping, for the king to reverse the edict, requesting, Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews. The king then gives Esther and Mordecai full authority to draft and distribute an irrevocable edict in his name. This message, written in multiple languages, is quickly delivered to all 127 provinces. And I quote now, "...the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children." And to plunder the property of their enemies. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple, and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. In fact, joy spread across the realm as the news traveled, at least among the Jews. However, many of those of other nationalities were seized with fear. Chapter nine begins on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The chapter further notes, no one could stand against them. As for Mordecai, he was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Across the vast territory, the Jews struck down their enemies, doing what they pleased to those who hated them. However, and I quote, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Across the realm, on a single day, the Jews killed 75,000 people. And now I quote again, that is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. At news of the Jews' success in Susa, the citadel, the king asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? She replied, If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. The following day, this request is carried out. The rest of the chapter simply records how Mordecai and Esther made certain the events are recorded, as well as made sure that this deliverance would be memorialized yearly with great celebration, including the giving of gifts, especially to the poor. Chapter 10 notes that the king imposed tribute across the empire, that a full account of his power and that of Mordecai were carefully recorded. It's also noted that Mordecai was second in rank, To King Ahasuerus. That is the end of Esther. Job is a fascinating book following Esther, most of it a dialogue between a stricken Job, grieving immense loss, and his so called friends trying to sort out the cause of Job's distress. However, the book includes profound insights into the struggle between good and evil. It also includes powerful words from God to Job and his friends sections well worth reading and reflecting on. Let's get started. Job chapter 1, by the way, a chapter well worth reading, begins by introducing us to Job, a blameless man of significant wealth and having a delightful family among the greatest men in all the East. It's made clear that he dearly loves his sons and daughters being deeply concerned for their spiritual well-being. The story gets interesting, however, when it tells of an angelic assembly at which Satan is present. In a conversation with God, Job's name comes up. God telling Satan, and I quote, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan immediately questions Job's motivation. Does Job fear God for nothing? Then he proposes, Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you. To your face. Satan is given permission to take nearly everything from Job. In quick succession, devastating news comes to Job of disaster striking his livestock and finally his children. Job is overwhelmed with anguish. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This chapter and the next are uniquely helpful in the conversation of evil in the world and worth thoughtful consideration. The story clearly lays blame for destructive forces from apparently random events to pillaging to natural disasters at the hands of demonic forces, not gods. Job chapter 2, another chapter worth reading, finds Satan again appearing in an angelic assembly, this time claiming that Job's continued loyalty is only because Job isn't personally suffering harm. A man will give all he has for his own life, says Satan. So Satan's given permission to make Job miserable, but not kill him. And I quote, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept Good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job's three friends came to comfort and sympathize with him, weeping aloud at his near unrecognizable condition and sitting with him for a week in silence. In chapter 3 of Job, we hear him speaking to his friends for the first time, breaking the week of silence. And I quote, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. The entire chapter is a heart-wrenching curse uttered against his own birth. It ends with these painful words. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job chapter 4 is Job's friend, Eliphaz the Temanite, replying, and he's the first of the three to speak. After a few introductory lines, he gets to his main point, and I quote, Consider now. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And that's the whole point of his argument. Bad things happen to bad people. And then, further down in his speech, he asks this question Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Job chapter 5 continues Eliphaz's speech. As he challenges Job to deal with his obvious situation. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? And these words. Hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause, my yes, my cause before him. And Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up, he injures, but his hands also heal. Then, in the following lines, he assures Job that God will certainly protect and provide for those whom he corrects. In Job chapter 6, we find Job's reply. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales. It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job continues to lament his circumstances and then turns to his friends. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. His response in chapter 6 ends with these lines. But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Job chapter 7 finds him continuing, speaking out of the bitterness and anguish of his heart. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss and turn until dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. Then a few lines down, I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. His final words before Bildad chimes in are an appeal to God. Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. And so concludes today's highlights.